Good morning, everyone. Uh, so today uh, we have a very special guest uh, on our uh, podcast, uh, Writers Backstage. Uh, we have Dr. Emily Rutter. Um, uh, she teaches at uh, Ball State University. Um, Dr. Emily Rutter, uh, Ruth Rutter is an associate professor of English at Ball State University. Uh, she's the author of Invisible Ball of Dreams, Literary Representations of Baseball Behind, uh, Behind the Color Line, um, University Press of Mississippi, 2008, and uh, The Blues Muse, Race, Gender, and Musical Celebrity in American Poetry, by, uh, published by the University of Alabama Press, 2018. And the forthcoming Black uh, celebrity contemporary representation of postbellum athletes and artists, uh, published by the University of Delaware Press, fall uh, 2021. So, uh, along with Tiffany Austin, uh, Sequoia Manor, and uh, Darlene uh, Anita Scott, uh, she co-edited *Revisiting the Elegy in Black Lives Matter Era*, by, uh, published by Rutledge in 2020. And uh, her numerous essays have been published in *African American Review*. Uh, Ethlon and uh, multi-ethnic literature uh, uh, journal, uh, among other journals. Uh, welcome, Dr. Rutter. Thank you for joining us today and agreeing to uh, do this interview with us. Oh well, thank you so much for having me, Hayat. I'm, I'm. It's my pleasure to be here and to talk with you. Thank you so much. Um, so um, I'm going to start uh, off with a very like broad question because I guess a lot of our audience here. Um, maybe have uh, uh, like uh, uh, not trouble, I say, but a difficult time maybe defining uh, ethnic uh, literature. Uh, so um, what is like ethnic American literature if we're, if we're thinking uh, of like definition? And then um, uh, how does canonization uh, play a role in defining a kind, this kind of uh, literature? Um, uh, I think uh, that we uh, previously we talked in, uh, about this aspect uh, a lot, um, just defining it um, and looking at canon, I guess, at the same time. Um, yes. So if you'd like. To yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I think those this is a great question because I think those two things are really interrelated. Um, you know, the term multi-ethnic American literature really came about um, that kind of qualifier multi-ethnic um, because historically American literature was kind of synonymous with white and mostly male literature, right? So there was a, you know, in, in mid, the mid 20th century an American literature syllabus, um, you know, the only woman on it might be Emily Dickinson, right? And there were certainly no Black Americans on it. Yeah. Uh, so the multi-ethnic literature kind of movement, um, you know, grows out of the studies movements of the late 60s, things like Black Power and, you know, Native American um, kind of empowerment, uh, women and gender studies, you know, all of these kinds of really all initiated by the Black Power Movement, but all of these kind of studies programs that get institutionalized uh, in American universities and colleges and um, multi-ethnic literature is kind of a way in English departments of kind of, again, changing the paradigm of American literature from being predominantly white and male um, to being representative of the demographics of the country, right? Which yeah. is certainly not <laughs> um, made up only of white men. Yeah. Um, so I mean, you know, 
obviously we're all ethnic. We all have, you know, backgrounds that are where we all have an ethnicity. Um, and I think, you know, multi-ethnic American literature is representative of that. Although I would say also that um, while there are some ethnicities that are sort of under the umbrella of multi-ethnic that are also white, like yeah. Italian American literature, Irish American literature, um, yeah. In general, when we say multi-ethnic literature, we're talking about non-white uh, literatures. Um, so literature that is, you know, uh, written and published by um, writers who are BIPOC or Black Indigenous or people of color. Yes, that's interesting. And then, um, so like, how does can canonization, I guess, fit in with, with like defining, I guess, uh, ethnic American literature? Yeah, so I think that can, like the canon um, is, you know, historically, again, of the kind of white male American literature, um, that canon, um, that multi-ethnic literature is kind of a, you know, it, it, it sort of like it subverts that canon and it basically, you know, challenges the whole idea of canon. Mm -hmm. Although while that, you know, that, that being said, I think, um, because of that kind of paradigm of having, you know, a canon of text that everybody teaches yeah. and everybody references and, you know, it's kind of other writers are referencing those works and, you know, the, the way that that sort of um, body of knowledge becomes disseminated and understood, I think uh, that actually gets replicated in some ways in, you know, in multi-ethnic American literature or in African-American literature, you know, like we still, we have the tendency to canonize, right? We have the tendency to say, here are the body of, here, here are the texts, yeah. the texts, right? That are so important to your understanding of X literature. Yeah. Um, so I don't think we've moved away from that sort of proclivity for, or that sort of, um, you know, desire to kind of have a, a, a body of works that's sort of representative of a particular experience, but mm -hmm. we, but there has, you know, since, again, since the late 60s and, and certainly into the 80s and 90s, there's like a long period, decades of really challenging that canon and trying to replace it with mm -hmm. um, this kind of multi-ethnic vision of American literature. Yes, so it's kind of like canon is it as in it like forms the power. Uh, it's a it's a it's force, I guess, that can you know uh, give I guess credit to uh, writers and then take that from others. I guess from from absolutely. I think it's totally related to power. That's a really good point. I mean, there's a famous phrase. I think it's attributed to Hortense Spillers that mm -hmm. canons are made, not born. Yeah. Right, that people have to shape them and they have to invest them with power. Um, and so, you know, yeah, they, they, you know, it, what, you know, if we say that, you know, you, you can't be a student of American literature without reading William Faulkner or something like that, yeah. then you, you're, you know, you're giving that his novels a certain kind of value. Um, and it's certainly elevated above other, you know, types of knowledge, even the written word, even saying that like a, t a written text is more important than like song or oral traditions. Um, you know, that that's another kind of power move. And we're, you know, we're, that we're thinking about values and who gets included in that, right? Um, and, and whose kind of ideals, uh, experiences are reflected in that body of work. Right, and um, it's like uh, also uh, I guess evident in um, 
many like ethnic uh, writers works who um, I guess trying to define their identity in this broad I, I guess uh, uh, plethora of uh, American literature uh, mm -hmm. yes um, so well, trying to write themselves into it right yeah yeah like uh, that literature is not sort of this um you know, blank slate, or it's not, it's not, it's not without ideological importance. Yeah. Um, and so, um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think the literature tends to convey, I mean, it, it's both a window and a mirror, right? It tends to convey a lot of cultural, sociocultural and political values. Um, it reflects them, uh, while it also, you know, gives potentially gives readers um, access to experiences that aren't their own. Yeah. So it has, you know, it has a lot of potential in that way. Um, but, you know, I think historically um, it did work as, um, you know, it often worked in terms of the canon as a kind of hegemonic tool. Yes, definitely. Yes. Um, uh, so I guess that's for like the definition of ethnic American literature. So I'm moving on to talking about uh, your book, uh, Invisible Ball of Dreams. Um, so, um, which is a very wonderful book. I loved reading it. Um, and uh, you focus on uh, uh, black baseball and uh, ways in which it, it has been presented, I guess, in literature. Um, I know that you chose the title of the book from uh, Quincy Trope's poem, uh, Poem for My Father, and the metaphor Invisible Ball of Dreams uh, uh, that you talk about here. Uh, you also talk about like our tribal erasures, uh, which was really interesting. Um, uh, and I wanted to ask you about it and uh, uh, reading uh, representations across the curl line. Um, so why did you choose like baseball in particular to address the, you know, the benefits and limitations of white empathy, as you say in the book, um, and uh, black cultural pride? Um, uh, why did you choose the frame of the, you, you know, we started from the 1970s, I think that's what, um, uh, the frame for the book, yes, the beginning frame of the book, yes. Yeah, so, I mean, I guess I would say that, um, just as a little bit of context for those listening, you know, um, in America, I mean, baseball, has, you know, historically was, you know, the national pastime, it's some, it was like a cultural, you know, glue. Um, that most people had some kind of purchase on, you know, most people understood um, the rules of the game and certainly, you know, were at least casual kind of spectators. And I mean, that, that has been replaced, baseball has been replaced in many ways by basketball and football. Yeah. But, um, you know, certainly in the most of the 20th century, baseball was like a, a key cultural touchstone. And so much of our vernacular, so much of the American language comes from baseball. Yeah. Um, so I mean, just it's really integrated into kind of the experience of being American. Mm -hmm. And so much in the same way that like soccer, football is in many other countries, right? Um, so just as, as a kind of cultural touchstone. And, you know, baseball was segregated and racially segregated up until 1947. So um, black players were not allowed to, they were, they were prohibited from yeah. playing um, in the minor and major leagues. And so they established their own league, the Negro Leagues. Um, and just last week, um, uh, a, a week ago exactly, actually, uh, the major leagues, the baseball commissioner, 
um, mm -hmm. recognized um, the Negro Leagues as a major league. And so this has been, you know, this has been going on. Yeah. So this has been going on for, you know, uh, like over a century, right? Um, you know, actually, in fact, the Negro Leagues were established in 1920. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. So it's, so it's been, you know, this is just a very, very long history. It's yeah. a very important history. It's also one that a lot of people aren't familiar with. You know, it's, it's uh, a, a lot of people, a lot of white, uh, you know, viewers of, or spectators, baseball fans and readers, you know, weren't familiar with this history, I would say. Um, and I would say that most people in general, whatever race or ethnicity or cultural background, weren't familiar if they were born after, you know, a certain point. Yeah. Um, and so it's a, it's a understudied, to a certain degree, understudied history. It's gotten more, um, attention this year with the 100th anniversary of the Negro Leagues and then last week when mm -hmm. the major leagues, you know, recognize the Negro Leagues that it's yeah. gotten some more press. But I'd say one of the things that drew me to it is that like it's understudied history. There really wasn't very much at all written about it until the 1970s. Um, yeah. And part of that, I mean, this is, it's very complicated, but I guess part of that has to do with that you know, when integration happened. So when Jackie Robinson and Larry Doby and other black players were signed to major league rosters and yeah. in 1947 and beyond, there was a kind of, you know, um, the Negro leagues started to fold. Um, you know, they, they, they didn't no longer had a fan base. Um, yeah. and, um, there was just a sort of, um, desire, I guess, but to kind of move on. Right. Yeah. Um, and so people didn't really start looking back, I guess, to that history, mm -hmm. um, that much until the seventies and the seventies is when for the first time, yeah. the, the kind of iconic Negro leagues players were inducted into the hall of fame, okay. which became, yeah. So that was, that, that was like, I mean, not enough of them, you know, only nine mm -hmm. players were inducted, but there was a kind of, at least there was in, in the seventies, there was a kind of moment of truth and reconciliation or truth and reckoning, you know, to a certain extent about that history of segregated baseball and about, you know, these players getting inducted. And so there was just sort of more interest in black baseball in the seventies than there had been like in the sixties, for example. Yeah. Um, and so that's, you know, that's my um, sort of thesis on why, uh, you know, writers started to be interested in, in the topic in that period. Um, so suffice it to say, I started in this, I started the book in the seventies because there just isn't really a lot of literature about black baseball before the seventies. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just like a natural starting point. Yes, definitely. And uh, I'm, I might like to ask you this question. So like how national can a sport be? Like you mentioned there are other like national sports like cricket in the book and how this sport challenges colonial exploitation. So what did baseball do for African-Americans? Uh, I guess, was it a way all, also to battle white forces and uh, their power, I guess? Yeah, I think, I think so. I mean, you know, I think, um, I think again, you know, baseball, especially during the 20th century being a kind of cultural touchstone and then being, you know, black players being barred from playing professionally in the premier leagues, um, you know, so, so establishing their own league and kind of proving 
their ability to not only play, but to really excel uh, was a way to kind of put the lie to, you know, these kind of false ideologies of, um, of black inferiority, you know, and, and it's, you know, it's a, it's, it's complicated and, and somewhat ironic too, because of course, sports and music are these two arenas in which African-Americans have long um, excelled and to a certain degree been kind of, you know, tentatively um, allowed to quote unquote, um, allowed to excel by kind of a white power structure, but on such limited, on such a limited basis, you know, and so, um, but I think that, that sports has been this kind of proving ground, especially for men. Um, and so, you know, in, in America, it's like baseball would be like the sport to, you know, take up if you want to prove, you know, that, white superiority is a lie or, mm. you know, it, in, you know, a sort of Indian context that, you know, to be a great cricket player would be to prove that, you know, British, white British superiority is a lie. And so that, you know, th these are, you know, these, yeah. <laughs> these are very kind of masculine codes and ways of, um, you know, that kind of competition is certainly a very direct way of kind of uh, proving one's merit. Yeah, I was thinking of, uh, like, I think uh, here, like in Saudi Arabia, we have, well, like, we do have football, I guess, but I, I don't know if we can call it like a national sport, too, because we also have like uh, horse racing, like camel racing, and now even like horse racing, it's become like uh, more of a, like, uh, you see the queen, for example, of England attending a horse race, or, a, so it's like, I don't know, like, where it originated, so is it from us, or like, is it in Britain, or like as a, as a yeah that's interesting yeah uh so yeah i was just thinking about that so yeah um, that's a good question i mean it almost seems like because of like where horses are originally from i mean yeah arabian horses or yeah. yeah i mean that is probably from yeah saudi arabia yeah. or at least that region at least your region and it's it probably does. something that the british yeah yeah i i would say yeah that's that's a really that's an interesting history and yeah i mean i don't you know i i think this whole idea of a national sport is you know maybe kind of troublesome in some ways but i do yeah. think um it it's the way that uh the sport and the fans and in some ways countries conceive of it so yeah. it's not that it really is representative of like american values right yeah. but i mean the thing the other thing about baseball is baseball's whole mythology is that it's a that it is a, a you know, a level, literally where we get the phrase level playing field, right? It's a level yeah. playing field mm -hmm. on which like anyone can compete and it's yeah. about merit. It's not about like social advantage or anything yeah. like that. And of course we know from the history of baseball was particularly with segregation and the exclusion of women yeah. that, um, you know, that it, it is the exact opposite of that, right? It's, it's all about social advantage. Yeah. Um, and so I think baseball is also really, kind of keen example of American hypocrisy, yeah. um, like where the myth does not line up with the reality. Um, and, and so that's one of the things that makes it so interesting in terms of representation and, you know, critical examination. Yeah, because I um, I was thinking too that like we have just started to have a like an all women football team, like a Saudi mm -hmm. football team. 
So I think that's like, and, and they're going to compete with other like countries. So I think that that's a good thing that we're, <laughs> we're seeing here. So, um, yeah. And I, I don't know if like, um, I think I've seen this movie once, but I don't know, I'm, I haven't checked, but like there is like a woman like baseball league, right? The, like women's baseball league, like. Yeah, a league of their own. Yeah, yeah. there was, um, yeah, during during World War II. Um, okay. Oh so, yeah, so yeah. There were, but like there's nothing now, right? Um, uh, do they still like uh, go on or like do women play baseball? Mm. Yeah. I mean, they're, ha they're, they're they do, um, not in a professional league. I mean, there, there's a, um, women in America often play softball. Okay. Um, yeah. so it's, it's like a, a variant. It has like literally like a bigger, softer ball, okay. um, with some slightly different rules. Like the pitching is a little bit different. Yeah. Um, things like that. I mean, it's totally gendered. I mean, it's just, you know, uh, okay. I, I do think, you know, there will be, um, I think there will be significant inroads um, into the kind of all male structure of baseball in years to come. Yeah. Um, you know, um, the Miami Marlins um, just hired uh, a woman as their general manager, you okay. know, and so I think like we're going to see a lot more women in leadership positions than potentially as players um, in the years to come. And I should also note that one of the really interesting things about the, the Negro leagues is that um, they actually broke the gender line, um, you know, oh. decades ago. So like there were three women who played on the Indianapolis clowns. Okay. Um, yeah. yeah. Like, but so, I mean, major league, the major league baseball still hasn't done that. And yeah. the Negro leagues did that like wow. in yeah. the fifties. So, um, yeah. yeah, it's pretty amazing. And it's also, again, something that a lot of people don't know, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I am glad we're talking about this so they can know <laughs> yeah it's i mean those yeah those i mean so so there are you know there are lessons i think for um you know these kind of white dominated sports to learn from yes definitely. you know the negro leagues and other other kind of histories like that you know there's a, a lot to be learned from this yeah. history so yeah like in the book you talk about uh how imaginative literature plays a crucial archival role uh, so, like, how did you, like, bring this idea of, like, the archives uh, in the book? Um, is it true that archives can bear some form of, I'm quoting you, a power structure, as you say in the book? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, archives are these places that we, that, I mean, uh, generally when people talk about, like, going to an archive to do research or, you know, the National Archive or something like that, it's like the storehouse of, documents and artifacts, right? And so it's this place that sort of purports to hold the most important knowledge. Um, and of course, all knowledge is curated, right? Somebody chooses what to include in that archive and what to exclude. Yes. Um, and then, you know, and then how it's presented and then who has access to it. Um, and so all of those things are really important to consider in terms of power. And then we also have to think about things like, you know, people that were non-literate or people that, mm -hmm. you know, um, were just sort of considered disposable or insignificant in terms of their material, the materials of their lives. Yeah. And so that, you know, their lives are under documented or even undocumented in archives. And then that archive is, you know, used to 
support knowledge, provide evidence of this like national story or the way we understand, you know, our history or the way we understand the way the past and, you know, influences the present. And so the archives have a great deal of power and they, um, you know, knowledge is not a neutral thing. It's, you know, it's shaped in particular ways to convey particular kinds of messages. And so, I mean, with this history of black baseball, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of people who've worked really, you know, assiduously on trying to archive this history because it wasn't that well documented at the time. Yeah. They, you know, they, the teams didn't have the same kind of resources, you know, the, the white press didn't cover the games, you know, um, so the archival knowledge has been again, really diligently kind of pieced together, but there's still all this other knowledge that doesn't, you know, that can't be recovered and that can't, you know, can't even be documented. Like, you know, um, statistics don't tell us the whole story. Yeah. You know, what, what, what did it mean? What did this, what did the experience of, you know, playing on this team or being, you know, barnstorming in this Jim Crow South or, you know, what did it feel like to know that you were like Satchel Paige, like the greatest pitcher um, in America and not be able to play, you know, on a major league team until yeah. you were in your late forties, mm -hmm. you know, that the, like those kinds of the feelings, you know, um, the experiences that just not only yeah. like weren't documented, but in some ways like can't be documented in the same ways. And so I think one of the things that I'm trying to do in the book, um, and in some other work I've done on archives is just, is think through what archives aren't capable of, um, you know, sort of what traditional archives aren't capable of documenting yeah. and like what kinds of other sources of knowledge. And for me, that's often literature. Yeah. Like how does, how do these other sources kind of fill in those gaps? Yes. And I think most of like uh, the audience here is familiar with August Wilson's uh, fences. And so, yeah. How does like that work in particular fill in uh, like an archive archive gap, I guess, uh, about African American baseball? Yeah. So I mean, are, I in that in my reading of Wilson's play, August Wilson's play, and then the film that is adapted by Denzel Washington. Yeah. Um, I I look at those through the lens of um, what another theorist and Savakovich terms an archive of feelings. So yeah. I really think about, you know, all that the that, that play is really all, all about feeling. Yeah, <laughs> it's all about true. Troy Maxson. Yeah, like in the chat, yeah. uh, you do give like each archive a name, right? So the, the archive of feeling. And then I think I that's what I remember of reading the book. Um, so you do have like different archives that are doing different things, I mean. Yeah, exactly. So um, in that chapter, I'm really, I'm really thinking about like how that play and the film yeah. adaptation is all about emotion and kind of um, the, the, this, these lingering feelings and really what I call post-traumatic stress, you know, not that I invented the term post-traumatic stress, but I'm thinking about how Troy Maxson has post-traumatic stress from being um, denied opportunities and particularly, you know, denied the opportunity to, you know, for example, play for, you know, a minor or major league team. Yeah. Um, and I'm also thinking about just in, in that chapter and just sort of more generally, like 
the narrative of racial integration in America. Um, And, you know, that when we, when we actually grapple with those unresolved feelings, when we grapple with that trauma and the like post, you know, stress of that trauma, um, that we're also refusing a kind of uh, progressive narrative that says like, yes, that was bad. You know, yes, that was hard, but now look how great things are, or, you know, we fixed that or something along those lines. And I think um, fences really uh, challenges that notion that, you know, signing a couple of black players to major league teams or, you know, like opening up certain opportunities for black people kind of, you know, solved all of the, America's like racial apartheid Um, and you know I think that play does a brilliant job of saying you know what were the costs of integration yes you know and and like on whose terms were things integrated and like what we know from that play and what we know from history if especially if you're you know, a scholar of um, Black history, or if you are in African-American studies, you know that, like, you know, integration happened almost entirely on white terms, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. and, and so it didn't change power structures uh, very significantly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that play is really um, kind of enjoins us to wrestle with that, right, to really, like, take a different kind of, to hear a different perspective um, that is that challenges that that sort of dominant narrative and and i think you know wilson and then washington i mean they do it through this very micro history right it's the history of this family but through that family we get you know this whole other way of kind of experiencing um you know the 50s and 60s that's interesting and and i don't know if like if uh i haven't seen like a play like uh the play but i did see the movie so i don't know if like if, if if it shows the same thing, um, I guess. Uh, yeah, the, the, the film is, I have seen the play live actually here in Indianapolis at the Indianapolis um, yeah. Repertory Theater. And it is, you know, the play is, uh, I mean, the film is pretty much exactly like the play, like the, yeah. like Denzel Washington, you know, played Tori Maxson on Broadway. Yeah. And so did Viola, Viola Davis played Rose. So like they, yeah they played those roles on Broadway and then they played them in the film. And so yeah. like, I, I think like the film is, is basically like a filmic version of the play. I mean, there really are very few differences between the okay. two. So that's interesting to know too, because yes, because I did see, I, I, cause I was looking forward to looking at a play. I don't know, <laughs> maybe I'll find some production and yeah, and see, see if there are any differences, but yes. Um, so um, I guess um, you talk about like in chapter one, I guess in particular, you mentioned like white empathy. Uh, can you tell us more and like the limitations of white empathy, what you mean by that um, in relation maybe to one of the works um, uh, in the book? Yeah, I, so I start that chapter with, mm-hmm. um, or that section of the, um, of the book with the first novel and then filmic adaptation about black baseball. So it's yeah. William Brashler's novel, The Bingo Long Traveling All-Stars and Motor Kings. And yeah. then there was, and that came out in 73. And then there was a filmic adaptation of that that came out in 76, 1976. Um, and 
Yeah, I mean, those are really interesting works. I mean, both William Brashler's White and the direct Don Badham is is um, a British white guy. And wow. um, yeah. yeah, and so they, you know, so it's, so it's, you know, it's a good, um, a good example of what I was saying earlier, where like, you know, these um, neat former Negro League players are being inducted into the Hall of Fame, and there's a sort of renewed interest about black baseball in the early 70s. And, and the novel, the being along traveling all stars is, um, I mean, it does some important work in terms of uh, kind of retooling or reconfiguring these like myths about baseball until so, like the mythical hero, like the archetypal hero, you know, is, is sort of reconfigured to be this black baseball player, you know, and the there's certainly a lot of mythology in the book and and the film about like how incredible they are. I mean, and they, they were, yeah. but like, it, you know, it really vaunts them as these like incredible athletes. Yeah. Um, so that would be like part of the benefit, you know, mm-hmm. is, is that they, these, you know, uh, writers and filmmakers who aren't necessarily from that, the community, it's not like they're, you know, you know, their father played for a team or anything like that, mm-hmm. but they like did the research and were like, okay, I'm going to really pay tribute to these figures. And I'm going to really kind of like pressure this whitewashed history of baseball. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, I, yeah, I'd say that's the benefit. I mean, the limitations are that, um, you know, in the novel and the film, um, yeah. there's kind of, there's, there's sort of what I was saying just a minute ago about fences. There's this kind of narrative of like, that you know that was then but then you know integration happened and it was like a relatively like smooth or kind of like painless transition yeah from segregation but of course like yeah (laughs) it didn't happen like that um and so like the limitation is like that there's there's not like a, a a really uh like conscious conscientious kind of effort to dwell yeah. on you know the ways of like the 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 trauma that like could never be repaired by you know Jackie Robinson being signed by Branch Rickey to play for the Brooklyn Dodgers like the, mm-hmm. that you know that that's just never gonna like do for, for all these people who's you know all this trauma that people experience as a result of Jim Crow segregation mm-hmm. um so I would say that that is um you know, a serious kind of flaw, uh, you know, and limitation. And then, I mean, the other thing is like both of those, like both the novel and the film kind of pivot a lot around slapstick humor. Um, Mm -hmm. And so that feels a little bit um, Mm off-putting because again, like the players on Negro League's teams, I mean, they thought of themselves as serious athletes so you know if you're going to um pay tribute to them you know and being in a more serious mode that really you know honors the way that they saw themselves um would be you know i think that would have a a greater like that would be have greater cultural value you know or pedagogical value um than sort of like acting portraying them as like clowns yeah. you know and i think that does some pretty serious harm yes uh definitely um i think that's a, an important concept i think to like everyone should understand like uh the concept of and how how it's limited i guess um so i uh, i was really interested to find that you talk about uh children's uh like uh books and so like how important is it to introduce children 
uh, I guess, to this kind of history. Um, uh, for example, in chapter six, uh, you argue that uh, millennial audiences uh, who might be really not interested in this kind of past, you know, about baseball or like, like that is behind the color line, um, really paid attention when it came to using forms like photographs, artifacts, paintings, illustrations, um, and different narrative voices, as you mentioned in the book. So like, how important is it to show children this kind of history? I guess this is my question. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's really important. You know, I, I'm not, um, none of my other research has been about children's and YA literature, but um, yeah. I found as I was researching and writing this book um, that uh, there are so many children's books about black baseball and I will um, link to, so you can put it in your show notes um, to um, my site that I created about black baseball literature that has a, a bibliography um, of children's books. Um, Cause I, I didn't get to cover nearly here. I'll just put it there in the chat. I didn't get to cover like, you know, I, I, I just did like a, you know, a, an examination of a couple, right? I didn't get to cover even like, you know, a fraction of what's out there. Um, there are just so many books. And, and I think they're really important because most, you know, people born, I mean, really people born after the civil rights movement, I mean, that, you know, they, I mean, because of what's happened this year, again, these recent events, the 100th anniversary of the Negro Leagues and this, this, you know, new recognition by the major leagues of the Negro Leagues. There's more press about it. But otherwise, I mean, you wouldn't generally, unless somebody in your family, you know, sort of passed down this knowledge, I mean, you just, you wouldn't necessarily know it. And so I think um, children's books are really important in kind of teaching the next generation and passing down this knowledge, you know. Um, and I'm looking I mean, at the grades and ages that you have too. This is interesting. I'm going to link it to the show, like, yeah, when I, when I put your biography. But yeah, like you, yeah. one to three or like uh, five to eight or like ages nine to 12. I think that's, yeah, these are important ages, I guess, for them to know. Yeah, they, you know, they really are. And I think, um, you know, people just don't, don't know this history. And so when you're a kid, I mean, that's the best time to kind of be introduced, right? As you're kind of framing your own understanding of American history or American sports history. And, you know, we can also think about like identity and how it's like affirmative for, you know, uh, black children in particular to see themselves in these books. And I think, um, I, and I, you know, it's important for white children too, um, to see, you know, to, to reckon with that history. Um, I mean, for, because of the ways in which basketball and football yeah. are, are these, you know, are, are like really the new national pastimes. And because both of those sports are actually dominated by, um, well, I shouldn't say dominated by, but they have predominantly African-American, the teams are predominantly African-American, the players. Yeah. There's, there's a false perception, I think, often yeah. that, you know, um, Black players have now and have always had a lot of agency yeah. in this field that they, you know, are like the face of in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, but of course we know that's not true. So even when, you know, even today, their football and basketball are dominated by black players in terms of like the rosters, but not in terms of coaches and, you know, ownership and things like that. So they, you know, they're, they're still, white power structure is still in place. And I think sort of 
having children return to this history, you know, learning this history allows them to have a more kind of circumspect understanding of like, you know, to be skeptical <laughs> and to have a more complicated understanding of like what sports, um, the power structures within sports and, and yeah. potentially how to, you know, affect change in that arena. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, um, uh, I was thinking of like Arab American uh, literature and like if they had any, I think I've seen some, a few children's books that like that talk about like who Arab Americans are and like um, what, um, like they took, yeah, I think I've seen one book that even talks about like the, the big three waves that immigrated to America. So, oh wow, that's cool. Yeah, so um, I think, yeah, children's books can uh, be a very good tool, I guess, to, to teach them, as you said, about this kind of history. Um, yes. Um, so I guess like me and uh, my colleagues um, uh, have always like talked about or debated uh, this question. And I, I think we might have answered this when you talked about like what ethnic American literature is, but like how important is it to be uh, recognized as an ethnic group in American literature? Um, I guess uh, we see many um, uh, like ethnic American writers either affirming their identities or you know, keep, keeping their identities even invisible. So you can't really tell if they're Arab, Arab American, for instance, uh, mm -hmm. uh, in different literatures. So if writers like distance themselves from their identities, does that mean that they gave up on defending and acknowledging their identity or, um, uh, uh, and even like they're giving up their place in American literature as an ethnic minority, I guess, uh, worth, worth to be heard or, you know, given a voice, I guess, in this big literature? Yeah, that's a, I mean, that's a really um, important and complicated set of questions. I mean, I think, um, you know, I mean, as we talked about, you know, on many occasions, I think like they're, you know, no one would identify as Arab American until they arrive in America. Yeah. So yeah. in some, some ways, it's a, you know, it's a social, it, these, hyphenated identities are, are, you know, they sort of cut two ways. I mean, on one hand, they're empowering. On one hand, they're a, you know, byproduct of white supremacy and the sort of notion that if you're, you know, um, if you're non-white, then you have to be this hyphenated identity, right? Yeah. Whereas if you're white, you can just say like, I'm American without, you know, sort of like qualifying it. Um, and so I think, I think that, you know, again, there's this sort of dual, um, this sort of paradox is really what it is, right? It's sort of on one hand, it's affirmative and empowering. And on, on the other hand, it sort of plays into this idea of otherness. Yeah, it's even funny, like when you come to fill like different forms, uh, they don't have like a box for like Middle Eastern or, you know, they right. just, it's like either white, Asian, Hispanic. And so like at most, I think there's a, a like there's a survey that like shows like um, uh, that most Arab Americans like choose white when they come to fill out like these kind of censuses and so yeah it's interesting uh, like even um, choosing like a, I don't know like a race a kind of race maybe uh, I don't know. right right I mean, right but you become you know many people who move to America become raced yeah. in America right yeah. before they never thought of themselves as having a race and, and so I mean we know all of that is like this false construction 
Um, but, you know, people like Gayatri Spivak and Lisa mm -hmm. Lowe, you know, are, you know, theorized about strategic essentialism. Like, yeah. we know race is a construction. We know there's nothing real about racial essences or anything. Mm -hmm. But, like, people that are, you know, sort of um, grouped together under the banner of, let's say, Arab American or even Middle Eastern, like, often find common cause um, mm -hmm in a nation that is othering them in many of the same ways. And so the, you know, that experience of being marginalized for, you know, X, Y, and Z reasons, yeah. like, you know, becomes a way to sort of come together. And then there's something empowering about the reclaiming of that identity yeah. in the face of that marginalization. And so I, I you know, I don't think that, um, it, you know, a hyphenated identity or, 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 or a sort of like literary genre that's based in an ethnic identity is, um, I don't think that that is, I, I mean, I think that that can be empowering. I don't think that that's like, you know, a negative development or anything along those lines, yeah. but it is, um, I think it's also, uh, you know, totally understandable why somebody would decide yeah, that they didn't want to, you know, position their work that way. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think um, we, we can get into questions about assimilation, you know, obviously, there's a lot of pressure in that regard. I think, I think in America, what happens is that um, non white people often find that there is almost nothing they can do to assimilate fully mm -hmm. that they're, they're still always already othered in some way. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, strategic essentialism and the kind of claiming of a hyphenated identity and tradition, again, becomes very empowering. And, um, yeah. you know, um, it becomes something else too, right? It becomes something beyond whatever the original reason for that grouping was so i mean you know you I, I don't have to tell you you know better than anybody that like arab american literature isn't just defined by you know these kinds of stereotypes right it's like it becomes its own thing it becomes this like beautiful complex thing on its own um, cause like I was really shocked to find like, uh, one of the, uh, writers I wrote about in my dissertation was, uh, William Peter Blatty and he's famous for his like exorcist movies and, uh, right. and, yeah, so I was like really shocked to find that he's, he is an Arab American, but he only like says that in his autobiography, but not like when he does the exorcist or, or any, any of the other movies. So that was interesting to see him like, just, you know, uh, just be an American, not, not an Arab American. And, and I guess when he did this, that movie, so. Yeah. yeah. And obviously there are a lot of examples of that. And, you know, yeah. there's all, there's kind of, you know, in, in like critical race theory, there's, you know, all kinds of understandings of like all kinds of theorizations, I guess, of like, mm -hmm. you know, when this group became white or how this group became white or whatever, you know, and so there's, there's, there's a lot of, um, you know, different kinds of moves that different ethnic groups have made to kind of be accepted into the mainstream and not be identified primarily by ethnicity, yeah. you know, um, and um, again, like the problematic aspect of, of that, not, not to impugn any individual, but just the, of that trend, that pattern is that, um, you know, it affirms white supremacy. Yeah. Yes, definitely. 
Um, so like, um, do you have any like um, upcoming projects you'd like to tell our audience about? Sure. Yeah. So I, in my bio, you know, yeah. you, when you're introducing me, you mentioned um, I have a book coming out next fall. Um, and that, that book is, is called Black Celebrity, uh, Contemporary Representations of um, Postbellum Athletes and Artists. And it's, it's really kind of follows um, this book that we've been talking about, Invisible Ball Dreams, um, mm -hmm. because I look at the ways in which uh, contemporary Black writers, poets, and novelists are representing um, Black athletes and artists from the kind of post-Civil War period. So actually the figures that kind of precede like the Black baseball players. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm looking at, you know, how those figures, those athletes and artists kind of laid the groundwork for, um, you know, the experience of Black celebrity today mm -hmm. and the way that um, these poets and novelists are kind of, again, you know, I'm drawing on archive area and thinking about the ways in which they are using the archive, like in their work, like quoting from historical documents and things like that, but also kind of like trying to reimagine the experience of being like Jack Johnson, the, you know, first black heavyweight champion or, you know, um, Cicerita Jones, who was an opera singer, and like to, to try to, they kind of use the archive, recognize its limits, and then, you know, try to sort of like reimagine these figures to try to give them like, you know, a subjectivity yeah. that they were denied like in their lifetime and, you know, up into the present. Um, yeah. So, yeah, and I mean, and again, I, I, I sort of trace that history and examine those works to kind of to, to think about actually what that this contemporary literature kind of allows us to see about the ways in which the past, yeah. you know, reflects the present or kind of, you know, laid the groundwork for the present. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah. Okay, everyone, keep a lookout for Black Celebrity. Yes. Thank you so much, Dr. Rose. Yeah, that, that would be, yeah. Oh, well, thank you, Hayat. This was fantastic. I really appreciate you having me. Yes, I loved uh, doing this interview. And yes, um, uh, everyone, thank you for listening. Uh, hopefully, uh, uh, you'll hear more episodes from us here in Writers Backstage. And uh, yes, have a wonderful day.